Good morning, church. Judges 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is it that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes harvest of Abazer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zebeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hands, I will flail your flesh with thorns in the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as, a, as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zabam and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men. All who were left of the army of the people of the east for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noab and Jabbim and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued... Hold on, I clicked something. Where was I? Here we go. And captured the two men of Midian. Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zomuna already in your hand, that you should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sokoth the lesson. And he broke down the tire pineal and killed the men in the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zomuna, Where are the men who you killed at Tabar? They answered, As you are. So they were. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as a man is, so was his strength. And Gideon rose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, 
the Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the earrings in his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants of the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephob of it and put it in his city of Ophrim. And all of Israel whored after there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrim, at Ophrim of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember their god who had delivered them from the hand of the enemies, their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are blunt, if not graphically blunt, on sin and its effects on people, communities, and nations. Lord, we read today that Gideon started out great. He didn't want to rule. He wanted to rely solely on you. But just like us, things get in the way. We replace you with something else. Gideon replaced his reliance on you with a golden ephod. Lord, this morning, um, as we are traveling through Lent, Lord, help us to search our hearts. Help us to get rid of our ephods, our snares, the things that take us away from you. Bring us back to total dependence and reliance upon you and your sacrifice that you made for us. We thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. I'll t- oh, there it is. I was going to talk really loud. I'm glad I didn't go full force on that one. Um, it's always a challenge to read the scriptures, and so Lynn, thanks for coming up and being so bold as to read um, in Judges. It's hard, y'all, and having to say Zeba and Zalmunna a million times um, gets redundant and kind of uh, awkward, and so we appreciate you guys reading. That's a challenge, and so I'm grateful for that. Also, grateful for all of you who moved up to the middle for me. I appreciate that. It is kind of awkward to like, you know, scan the crowd as you're talking and then have this big old gap of people to uh, look around. So I'm grateful that you um, were able to move up. Thanks for that. Um, I don't know how your week has been. I'm coming off of a week that's been a bit of a doozy. Um, Our week started off with Monday morning getting a phone call first thing in the morning that my wife's 99-year-old grandmother, who we lovingly refer to as Nanny, um, was not going to make it through the end of the day. 
And so um, our week started off a little, a little funky. We had to move some things around to make sure that we could be there um, for the family and kind of spend some time uh, with Nanny and with, and with Kristen and her mom and some of her brothers as Nanny's life um, ultimately uh, came to an end. And so um, one thing that I, that I have li- in my life, I've lived uh, attending more funerals and moments like that than I've ever had weddings. So my wedding was the first wedding I had ever been to because my grandfather was a senior adult minister growing up. And so I went to a lot of funerals and I was at a lot of bedsides even as a kid. And there's something about those moments where people come, ag- come around and somebody's life is ending and yet you're reminiscing and sharing stories about how much life has been lived memories that you have that are just beautiful and great. And so um, Nanny actually was able to come to the Grove for some time off and on with Kristen's parents. And if you got any chance to meet her at all, um, she was just a gem. She's a woman who uh, went back to college when her kids were in college because she wanted a challenge and actually graduated the same time as one of her sons with honors and he didn't. And then she became an educator um, and then went on to like do all kinds of really cool things. But the constant in her life was a love for the Lord, and it was evident in everybody that she met. My wife is a product of that because she raised her children to love and fear and have admonition for the Lord, and then therefore my wife is a, is a product of that kind of a devotion uh, to Christ. And so what happened in that room in that moment as she breathed her last breath is that her, um, the kids that are left living of hers and some of her grandchildren and myself got to be a witness to them breaking out into song into her favorite hymn. And it was just a reminder to me as I was preparing for this sermon to go, like, man, what a life well lived that when your last breath is taken, that people are left remembering God and worshiping him and praising him. And so as I was thinking about Judges 8, um, it's just a beautiful picture for Nanny of a life well lived, and it's more than just a life that's dependent on the Lord. It's one that obviously pointed back to Jesus in most every circumstances, and um, the result of that is people around her who are forced to remember God because of the way she lived. And so when it makes me think of Judges 8 and in our lives coming to a close, we see that this is the last chapter in Gideon's life. And so his life is essentially coming to an end, and we get to kind of read about it here in this last chapter. And so as we dig in today, what I want to do is I want to look at Judges chapter 8, and I want us to see um, how Gideon finishes and hopefully draw out some difficulties that there are in life for us to really finish well, and then some essential things that we maybe need to be focused on putting into practice so that we too can live a life that points to Christ and finished well. So if you were here last week, also I didn't introduce myself, I'm sorry. I'm Chris, the associate pastor here at The Grove. If you guys are new and don't know me, I'm grateful to be here and grateful that you're here this morning. So last week, if you remember, Lance led us through this beautiful kind of prime story of Gideon's life. We got to look on as Gideon tested the one true God not only once, but twice, and I don't know about you or if you have children, but if my kids come and ask me for anything twice that I've already given a clear answer to, I'm immediately grumpy. Um, and I turn into, anybody, any Parks and Rec fans? Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. It's funny. Okay, so if you don't know, Parks and Rec, there's this, there's this episode in this scene where this foreign diplomat is talking about um, the difference between what he sees here and then what he sees in his country and how they handle things. And this is what my mind goes to when my kids ask me twice for anything. It's like, oh, you want, you want sushi and I already told you no? Straight to jail. Oh, you want, don't want to do the dishes? Straight to jail. 
right? Um, if you've seen that episode, uh, you, know what, you know what I mean. But um, So straight to jail. I'm instantly grumpy when they ask me twice for things, and yet we see um, back in the last chapter of Gideon uh, last week that God is just very gracious with him. He's very patient and merciful with Gideon. He comes and meets him throughout the story of his life in chapters 6, 7, and 8. He meets him in his doubt and fear, and God does what's necessary to help bring Gideon to a place of deep trust and obedience to him. But then, um, if you remember from last week, we watched Gideon kind of amass this really what what, uh, seemed to be an insufficient army of 22,000 men, only for God to do some things to whittle that down um, to a solid 300, and then sends them to defeat the Midianites. And so it's this thrilling story to read about God's victory over the Midianites, really without the Israelites ever having to lift a single sword um, to see victory in that moment. And so it's been exciting to see that story up until now, and where, where Gideon goes from like a coward in a wine press hiding from the Midianites to this conquering hero, literally in just two chapters. And then we talked about last week that the book of Hebrews even includes him in this hall of faith. And it says of Gideon, it highlights him as a man whose life was marked by faith. And so wouldn't it be great if in chapter 8 we see this like triumphant ride out in victory into the sunset, singing songs of praise to God for the victories that God has given him. And I think if we look closely enough and we pay attention to what we just read um, from this morning, you may have noticed that that's not exactly what we see in how the story ends. It seems as if Gideon's life ends well, but however, I think if we look closer, I think we can pick out and see some pitfalls that Gideon fell into that he, that he succumbs to that I think are important for us to see and hopefully we can learn from as we also are in a process of trying to finish well um, in this life and hopefully we can avoid those pitfalls. The truth is that we're all on a journey. None of us knows the amount of days uh, or how much time we have left here. And so um, how we live really becomes important, and it matters um, how we live. And so because we're in the process of finishing well, hopefully we're, um, hopefully we're finishing well, but I think there's some difficulties, again, and some essentials that we can find here in Judges chapter 8. And so the first difficulty that I want to draw our attention to, uh, a difficulty to finishing well, is the danger of victory. And so if you remember um, back to last week's sermon again, the entire point of the lesson of the 300 and the people of Israel, uh, with the people of Israel, is that God didn't really need them to secure the victory. And that's why he dwindles their numbers down to what seemingly is impossible for them to have any kind of claim over victory, and then they go and, and stand around the encampment of the Israelites, and they don't even have to lift a sword. They, like Lance talked about last week, they held a trumpet and a torch, and everybody starts to flee, and there's infighting, and then they run, right? And so God has completely won the victory for them, and it's about him and not them, and it seems that it doesn't take long for that victory to kind of go to Gideon's head or for the Israelites to start to place their hope in Gideon. And we'll see this in the scripture here in a minute. His attitude of humility and timidity and fear that we saw just a chapter or two ago changes here in chapter 8. And I had to wonder this week, why is that? What changed? And I think that the victory that God enables him to experience winds up, it turns out to be kind of a dangerous foe. Uh, for him and his life. So let's look at the scriptures in chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. We're going to read those together. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, and he and the 300 men who were with him were exhausted yet pursuing. 
So he said to the man of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, uh, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give, you bread, give bread to your army? And look at Gideon's posture here. So, well then, well, the Lord has given me Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand. I will flay your flesh with thorns and in the wilderness with briars. And then from there he went up to Penuel and spoke the, same, the thing to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, interesting, I will break down this tower. I don't associate usually peace with coming and then destroying things. <laughs> I'm going to come in peace and also I'm going to wreck shop. Um, it's not usually how we see peace and, and destruction working together like that. But I think in verses 4 through 9, what we see is that Gideon is ultimately in pursuit of Zeba and Zalmunna, who are, these, he, who are these Midianite kings who are on the run. And he goes across the Jordan and seeking aid from his fellow Israelites along the way. And then the people of Succoth and Penuel are essentially, we see in the scriptures, somewhat afraid of the ramifications of what might happen if they aid Gideon and his 300 men. Where those two places sit geographically, if Midian had come back with vengeance, they would have been first to be attacked, or, or Midianites would have had to go through Succoth and Penuel to get down to Gideon. And so there's, there's probably naturally some fear in them that if they render aid and they're not certain that he's already killed these kings, that something's going to come back on them if they, if he, if they continue to, to aid him. And so I think it's interesting and we need to look at Gideon's response here and how it stands in stark contrast to what God's posture was with him just a chapter ago in his own fear and doubting. God was gracious with him, and here we see Gideon being extremely harsh with these two people groups. What a change from just one chapter ago, isn't it? And it seems as if Gideon has taken this recent victory over the Midianites and he's applied it to his own ability and might, and it appears as if he's a little puffed up. It's important to note that God has not given him any instructions even to chase after Zeba and Zalmunna, and so we have to wonder, why is he pursuing after them? What's, what's going on? And we'll see later on in a couple more verses in this chapter is that the reason he's pursuing them, he says, is because those two kings of Midian are responsible for killing his brothers in battle, right? So there's this picture of, uh, of, of vengeance, almost, of wanting to exact revenge. But I think it's important for us, before we get too harsh on Gideon, uh, to remember that this is us too, right? Our human nature really looks for opportunities to make things right when we're wronged in situations like this. Um, the problem is, is that our human nature we know is extremely sinful and we rarely make things right when we're given to our anger or our revenge or our frustration. And if Jeremiah 17, 9 is true, and we know it is, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? And so church, when we suffer wrongs, do we look for ways to get even? Do we look for ways to make sure the other party knows that they have wronged us? And we typically do this, and we do it out of principle, right? Well, it's the principle of the matter. That's what I used to hear growing up in my home. We go and make it right because it's the principle of the thing, right? And so do we do that out of, out of principle? Or maybe conversely, we experience victory in our lives and how easy it is to fall into the thought, well, see, God's given me this because he wants me to be happy. Or this is his plan for me. And so my prayer has been this week is that, man, the Lord would forgive us where we start to stray and kind of, 
uh, try to make our own way and kind of wander from him like we see Israel doing here in this passage. So there is a profound lack of personal communion between Gideon and God at this point. We don't know for sure, but it seems pretty clear that the victory that Gideon didn't win on his own um, has given him some kind of a new confidence or a drive to start going beyond what God has told him to do. And we do the same thing, don't we? Like, have you ever found yourself struggling with sin or maybe even finding victory over a particular sin or you've been in a difficult struggle where you can't see the forest through the trees and then after some length of time, the Lord brings clarity or victory in a certain situation? And I wonder, when those moments happen in our life, how do we tell those stories to others? Do we tell those stories in a way that points back to the goodness of God and that he is the one that has brought victory or that he is the one that's brought healing I just wonder how we tell those stories. And so I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, most of you know our story as a family. There's some of you who are newer and don't. So our family was brought together through the beauty of adoption. And with that comes a lot of beauty and a lot of difficulty. Um, and so when we sit down with families and we have this conversation and we begin to talk and share stories and tell them about our journey through infertility for years and, and eventually to adoption, a lot of times the response we get, and I know that the meaning is well, and I know it's meant to encourage, but we get a lot of responses like, man, y'all are awesome. Man, you guys are doing a really hard thing. You should be proud of yourself. Man, good on you. Man, those kids are lucky. And I, I know the heart that those comes from, but at the same time, for me personally, I won't speak for my wife, but for me personally, it's hard in those moments to not just go, man, thanks so much. And then I miss, there's a subtle moment there where I miss being able to go, yeah, but it's only that way because of the Lord. It's only that way because God has brought our family together. You should see all the things that he did in the background. You should see the way he moved people into specific places to be able to knit our family together. And a lot of times, our hearts will allow us to just go, man, that's so great, thank you so much. And it's subtle, but really I'm taking the credit. Um, and I'm living under this banner of, oh, the Madigans are awesome. And I'm missing the fact that... Um, the Madigans aren't awesome, and our story is what it is uh, because the Lord is awesome, and so it's, it, it's no wonder that like right now God has ordained that we're in the season of Lent, and we're talking through these things with judges because I think the season of Lent is this perfect time to bring our hearts and our minds back to the reality that we're living under someone else's banner of victory, church. We would have nothing if not for God. We would be nothing if not for him, Right? And so we have to remember that we're living under this banner of victory that the Lord has won. And so it's not just in our day-to-day -day wins, but more importantly, it's in this battle over sin and death um, that we have no hope in apart from Jesus. And so that banner has God's name written on it. It always has, and it always will. And so when we remember, or even when we forget, we demonstrate that action for those around us. And so my question has been all week in my mind, is like, so what does it look like for us to really finish well? What does it look like for us to run this race and do it well? And I think a part of that is, is that we must remember that Jesus is the victor. And so how do we do that then? I think one way that we can do that is making sure that we understand it's essential for us to prioritize daily, personal communion with God. As I mentioned earlier, there's the glaring lack of personal communion that I see with, with Gideon towards God, and something that stands out to me in this chapter. Um, 
time of daily focused communion with God is a time that love for God and love for us is refreshed in our hearts. We see this all over Psalms, but specifically in Psalm 63, chapter 1, it says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you notice the intensity of those words that he's using? Earnestly I seek after you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So this is far more, it would appear, than just a daily Bible reading or going over a few prayer requests or our quiet time or morning devotionals or or something like that. And while I'm not negating those things because all of those things are good and right and necessary, I want us to keep in mind the the fact that the purpose of that quiet time and the purpose of entering in to times of prayer and reading the scripture is not just about reading a chapter in the Bible or going over a few prayer requests. Rather... It should be about a time of personal, deep communion with the Lord. So obviously, we need a plan with that. Sometimes we just need to have structure to that, and that's good. Um, We don't just open our Bible usually and flip through and like point our finger and whatever it lands. Like, all right, it's what the Lord has for me today. And that may be okay to a degree, but I think we're missing something if that's all we do. But, But for communion with God, I think is far, far more than just a plan. Communion with God is meeting with him, It's asking God to speak to us. It's speaking to him as we read his word and as we interact with his word, as we pray over what God is saying to us in his word and asking him to help us obey. These are pictures of communion with God. Again, we can go to the Psalms and look in Psalm 42, 1 and 2, and it says, As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or again, in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. And so the beauty of the Lord is not just a physical beauty. It's the beauty of his attributes. It's the beauty of his character. It's the beauty of his cross. It's the beauty of what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And the psalmist says, I just want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to have communion with God. This is what the focus time is all about in the scripture, personal communal time with God. And all of these scriptures speak out of this intense desire, it would seem, to have a personal intimate communion with God. Gideon is missing this. And the effect of that we saw in the scriptures is vengeance, is violence, and what presents as present-day apostasy or running away from what they know to be true and, and, and idolatry and worshiping other gods. And so the second difficult thing that I have for us this morning um, that keeps us maybe from finishing well is that we have a desire for a human savior. And so if we read verses 22 and 29 together, I think we'll see this. Verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Who saved you? Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well done, Gideon. Good job. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me your earrings. Uh Uh-oh. 
from the spoil. They had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them to you. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. The weight of the golden earrings that was requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Side note, that's about 50 pounds. 50 pounds of gold. Besides, so he holds back the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels... And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So we see the people of Israel come to Gideon after this victorious battle and after conquering Zalmunna and uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, and they are asking Gideon to rule over them. And Gideon, um, yeah, they're asking Gideon to rule over them because in their hearts and in their minds, we saw that they see him as the Savior. You have saved us. He's won the victory. And Gideon does so well to tell them that I won't rule over you, the Lord rules over you, but he also misses pointing them back to who actually won the victory. And so it's subtle there, but he doesn't point them back to the true victor. So Gideon shows real promise here again. He tells them he won't rule over them, but in this verse and in the following verse of 22 and 23, um, he doesn't correct their claims that he's the one that brought the victory. He doesn't point them back to God. Instead, he asks for gold earrings. And if you were with us last year in growth groups as we journeyed through Exodus, this kind of like harkens back to Exodus 32, where Aaron is at the base of the mountain and Moses is up on the top of the mountain. He's getting, receiving the law from God. And Aaron is down at the base of the mountain getting gold and melting it down to make a golden calf. Do you remember this? Do you remember this story? And so this kind of has some aligning aspect with what we see of Aaron at the base of the mountain. And you know, like nothing ever good really happens for Israel when the gold starts coming out and they start melting that stuff down to make things. And so when we see this in the story, it's like, oh man, they were so close, right? I also want you to take notice of something that's important in here, is that this is the first time in the judges cycle that the people of Israel start to, it says, whore after other gods while the judge is still alive. Typically, in the past chapters we've gone through, that happens after the judge dies and then Israel goes back. And we do see that here in chapter 8, but we also see it while, while Gideon's still alive, which is an interesting kind of turn of events um, here in Judges chapter 8. So the people of Israel begin to move toward idolatry specifically because of Gideon's actions to request gold and to make an ephod, which, another side note, an ephod was just a priestly garment that would be worn, and, and Gideon wasn't a priest. And so there's a whole lot there that we don't have time to get into, but I think as we look at the rest of this chapter, we see that Gideon begins to somewhat live like a king in a lot of ways. He seemingly retires to his, own, his hometown of Ophrah. He has, the scriptures would say he had many wives. It accounts for 70 sons. It even tells us that he had a concubine in Shechem, which would have been a Can of Canaanite descent, so we can go back and see all the problems there, right? And then that's the son that's specifically mentioned here in chapter 8, and his name is Abimelech, and we'll get to more of that um, next week, but um, take a guess at what Abimelech means. My father is king. So interestingly enough, the one son that's mentioned, he actually names my father is king, and it's subtle, 
And by, when I say subtle, I mean like my kids say at home, super sus, bro. Um, so interestingly, names mean things, right, in the Bible. We know that, and so that's an interesting point of reference there. So this is why when, when we look back at what he says about not wanting to rule over Israel and that the Lord will rule over Israel, we have to wonder, does he really mean it? So because, so because after that statement, he lives and acts like a king, even to the point of naming one of his children as a sort of a declaration of that kingship, we're told in verse 28 that the land has rest for 40 years. And sadly, this is the last time that we see this kind of peace and rest in the entire book of Judges. And truly, the rest that they're experiencing is really a compromised peace And it's a compromised peace because ultimately it's a peace without true worship and obedience of the one true God, right? And so I wonder where we've compromised on some things and we're lacking peace um, because we've compromised and and we've not focused and settled in with our relationship with the one true God and truly communing with him. And so now hear me, I want to be careful Uh, Like Lance mentioned last week, we've got to be careful not to assume too much about Gideon's intentions here, right? We don't want to assume too much about his intentions. But I think the scriptures in in chapter 8 make it clear that making an ephod definitely caused all of Israel to whore after it, and then it became a snare to Gideon, it says, and to his family. The call to be Israel's ruler and the fact that they see him as savior because of this victory over the Midianites seems to spur in Gideon's heart a bit of a desire to want to be wanted. But if we're honest, that that's not just something that we see Gideon suffer with. If we're honest with ourselves, we all want to be wanted to some degree right? Specifically as leaders, he's a leader, so we'll just, we'll start there. Specifically as leaders, all kinds of leaders, I think, want to be wanted. I'll speak for myself that this is especially true um, as I've stepped into a vocational role as a pastor, and even as a lay leader, it becomes really difficult to trust in and really rely on the fact that God doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us, and yet he chooses to use us, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing, And so when we want to see, like, I want to see an an impact that I'm making on people. I want to see how I'm making a difference in people's lives. And and when people people have a desire for a human savior, it's easy for them to come to me or to other pastors or leaders. And it's easy for them to somewhat desire that of us and for us to be tempted to step into that role and have kind of a savior complex. Like, we can fix all the problems, but that would be a really bad way to lead. And it will also be really bad for the people that we lead. And so we see this play out over and over again. Every time we hear of some church leader that's fallen away or, or had some kind of disqualifying sin issue, the ramifications of those are huge, and the ripple effect is far-reaching. But some of this, I know, is because they're, they, they, those leaders, specifically spiritually, are in a place of influence and authority. And so that failure ultimately saddens those that they're shepherding or leading who are under their care. And it also causes a lot of confusion and distrust. But in our day and age, what we have seen more profoundly here lately is that when those things happen, we dig further into modes of deconstruction where we start to not only just... Um, be saddened by the failure that we see, but then we start to go, well, is God even real? I mean, like, how could he be loving if this, or, and we start to question and doubt, and, and somewhat, some of us walk away 
um, from the Lord. And I wonder if that's the posture of a lot of people in our culture and even within the church because we have placed far too much hope and faith in a flawed human being rather than in God himself. And so where there is a fall, then our faith is rocked, right? And so I would just challenge us to think, like, where are we truly placing our hope and our faith but let's resist to think of this just in like pastoral terms or church leadership terms, because I think this is also true, and it happens in the home. Like a father needs to be needed by his wife or by his kids. It happens on the ball field where a kid needs to find the approval of his peers or of his coaches, or a mother needs to be needed and needs to feel desi- has the desire to feel needed by her children. We have the temptation to think that our children are turning out well because we're just such great parents instead of trusting in the grace of the one who gives generously and we could start to develop somewhat of a savior complex like I've got this all figured out. Or the inverse might be true and that is our kids are rebelling and seemingly running their lives uh, into the ground and then we are tempted to implode as parents and run ourselves ragged trying to fix what we can't fix and trying to save what we can't save and that's their heart which is the root of all of this. Right, And so J.C. Ryle, who is a pastor and an author, is famous for saying the best of men are just men at best. And so what that means is that there's no father or mother who is perfect, who doesn't hurt or sometimes let down their children. There's no athlete who doesn't make an error on the field. The best of men are still just men. The best of women are still just women. We all make mistakes. There are godly leaders but there's no godly leader who doesn't sin and let people down from time to time. There's no pastor who's perfect. We are not Jesus. We never will be. We're not meant to be your savior, and you could never be ours. So listen, we've all failed people under our leadership. I'm going to continue to fail forward, and I know you will too, as we learn to follow Jesus in all of life in increasing measure. That's why the life of the believer is called to be one of repentance and faith. There's no repentance if it doesn't mean that we fail, right? So repentance and faith is the life of a believer. And so it's hard to finish well when we look for a human savior or when we seek to become a human savior. It moves us away from the cross where we find the one true savior of the world. And so what is something essential that we can do to fight against this desire to be or to have human saviors? And I think that it's having a firmly rooted belief in the sovereignty of God and the love of God. So if we want to endure well to the end, if we want to stand firm in the faith, in the face of life's difficulties and pains and finish well, then you must have a firm belief in the sovereignty of and in the love of God. We continue to see this all throughout the book of Judges, that God is in control of every event in Israel's history. He's in control of even the enemies, like we saw that last week where Gideon's still doubting a little bit, and God gives the enemy a dream and tells Gideon to go down and listen. Like, God's in control of all of that, right? He's working all of those things out. And so the same is true for every event in your own life. God, in exercising that control, is doing so from a place of infinite love for you and I. And I wonder if we really believe that in the thick of things, when things are difficult and circumstances around us seem completely overwhelming, if we understand that God is allowing or causing difficulty in our life to use to form us into Christ. Many passages in the Bible show us the love of God, and I don't know where you've been in your devotional time this week, but I found a verse in Lamentations. I don't know how often we quote Lamentations, 
from the stage in a, in a sermon, but Lamentations 3, verses 37 and 38 has something really beautiful to say to this point. It says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So verse 37 affirms God's sovereignty even over the actions of other people. So much of life's pain is caused by sinful actions of others around us. And if you don't believe that God is sovereign and he's in control of all of those actions, then we'll be tempted to become bitter. And you'll be tempted um, to turn aside from God. And you'll struggle to stand firm in your faith and to finish well. And one of the ways that we can keep from becoming bitter is to realize that God is sovereignly in control over even the sinful actions of others. And so as we look at Gideon's life and we look at the pattern of life for the people of Israel, we also look at the oppression that God allows and even sends on his own people. We've seen just throughout Judges, and we wonder, what is God up to? What is God after in doing this? And I think the scriptures are clear to tell us that ultimately he wants to conform us into his likeness. And so he brings or he allows various circumstances, good and bad, that we ourselves probably would not choose for us. And he brings them into our lives because ultimately he wants to use those circumstances to conform us more and more into the image and the likeness of Jesus. And so by faith, I pray that this would be our posture and our prayer towards a God um, who is orchestrating all things, is that, Lord, I don't know what particular purpose you have in this difficulty or this pain or this trial, but you said that you will use it to conform me more and more to Jesus Christ, and I, for that, give you thanks. And we do this by faith. So it's no secret that life is difficult. It's no secret, most people would agree, that, um, that life is difficult, and it's even sometimes painful, and over time, we'll experience both of those things, right? And so if you want, if you and I want to endure till the end, if you want to finish well, if we want to stand firm in the face of life's difficulties and pain, then we must stand firm in a belief in the sovereignty and in the love of God for his creation. And we must not only believe that God is in control of every moment in this universe, and specifically every moment in your own life, but that God, in exercising that control, again, does that from a place of infinite love for you and I. So let's go back to chapter 8, and we'll finish off in verses 29 through 35. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, look at this, y'all. The people of Israel turned away again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. Look at this. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. And so God was still gracious with Gideon. God still allowed him to live out his days to a good old age. We know that Hebrews tells us that he was a man of faith. And so I don't want to belittle his time in the scripture, his obedience to the Lord. I think it's just a really good picture of kind of where we're all out, trying to struggle through life 
We, we are given to things that, that drift, cause drift away from the Lord when we're not diligent to pursue Christ in all areas and aspects of life. And there's subtle ways that we start to just kind of slip and slide. And so God was still gracious to Gideon. He allowed him to live out his life to a good old age. We, we know and again see that there was peace for 40 years, but we also see that immediately upon his death, Israel runs after other gods and does not remember the Lord their God upon Gideon's death. So church, my hope is that, that we walk away from here looking somewhat introspectively at our own walk with the Lord, and I wonder, what stories are you telling about the battles that he's won on your behalf? What stories are you telling about the victories that you've, that, that you've seen won by his hand alone in your own life? Are the people that God has put in your life, we send you out every week to the neighborhoods, to the networks, and to the nations with purpose and intention. So are the people that God has put in your path on a daily basis, are, are they put, who are put in your life, are you leading them to idolatry and turning away from God by the way that they experience you? Or is the way that they experience you drawing them into his presence and leaving them to marvel at his love and care for his creation? And I think those questions have been on my mind all week, and I want to challenge us with those, is if we look introspectively and go, man, how am I walking this walk out with the Lord? Am I pulling people and drawing people to the Lord, or am I pushing them away with the way that I choose to live and the things that I choose to prioritize? And so if you're anything like Nanny, and God gives you 99 years of life, um, whatever amount of time you'll be, you'll be given, will the people who know you be left knowing and remembering God's faithfulness, or will they be like the Israelites here in the end of Judges 8, and will they forget? So I pray that we'll live in such a way that the people who are around us will not forget our good and gracious God. Let's pray. God, you are just that, sovereign, in control of all things, working and moving and conforming and sculpting us into your image. And God, we confess that that's just really hard. And um, that process of refinement, like gold being refined, is a process where it only, it, gold is only purified under an intense heat. And when that intense heat comes, all that dross, all those impurities rise to the surface and so, God, as you do that in our lives, as you take away things that are necessary, that are keeping us from focusing on you, or you even bring about some calamity in our lives to, to help us to realize that we're not depending on you, and we're depending on ourselves. When our kids act a fool and make us want to rip our hair out because we've done everything we can to shepherd and guide them and put guardrails on the road so they don't run off in the ditch, and they still run off in the ditch... Lord, help us to rest in the fact that we can't fix their heart. And so we can surrender them to you, knowing that you're a God who created them, knit them together in their mother's room. We do the same thing with other people in our family, not just our kids, with our spouse, with our neighbor, with our in-laws, with our mom and dad, like whatever our situation or our circumstances are in life, let us be reminded that you are a God who is um, not only intentionally pursuing us, but you don't just save us and then just leave us be. Like you actually care about our formation. And so God, much like Gideon, would, would it be said of us at the end of our life that we were faithful 
And that may mean that there's bumps and bruises along the way, but God, would the big picture of our lives and the story of our lives be one of faithfulness? Would it be one that is pointing people back to you in all circumstances and situations, good and bad? And that the people that you've put around us, that you want us to bring the light of the gospel to, would they see it? Would they taste the salt of the earth? And would they respond with belief? In your name we pray. Amen.